Are you downsizing? Maybe need more room because of additions to the family, or possibly seeking that dream home you've always wanted. Well, Tim Eisner at Royal LePage Atlantic is the guy for you. With a proven track record and multiple awards, Tim goes above and beyond to find out your needs and exactly what you're looking for. So if you're seeking a new home or trying to sell your current one, contact Tim at 902-499-5717 or check him out on Facebook at Tim Eisner. Again, that's 902-499-5717. Trust me, when all is said and done, we'll be saying Tim Eisner strikes again. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Hope everybody's ready for the holidays. Pretty sure I am, which is odd for me because I'm usually in the store on Christmas Eve grabbing something. But uh, chances are I probably forgot something small, which I will be anyways. But as of right now, I feel like I'm, I'm all done. But uh, anyways, welcome to episode 76 of Outside the Shoot. I'm your host, Randy Frame. This week's OTC Player of the Week comes to us from California as Brianna Glass of the BSC Bengals Austin Ring 09 team takes home the weekly honors. Bree hits 642 with four runs scored, three walks, and six RBIs as her and the Bengals captured the Christmas Toy Drive tournament last weekend. Great work, Bree. Awesome job. On to this week's guest, and we sat down and chatted with the creator of Fast Pitch the Movie himself, Jeremy Spear. Jeremy got into the game of fast pitch after playing baseball growing up, which included four years at Yale where he would play Division I with the Bulldogs. Later on down the road, after spending time on the New York art scene, the competitive juices for sport were missing and he jumped into the game full force and decided to document that journey, which resulted in the creation of what we all know as Fast Pitch the Movie. We're going to talk to Jeremy about getting a start in the game, how big of an adjustment there was going from baseball to softball, the epic NCAA pitching duel between Frank Viola and Ron Darling that he was a part of, and of course all the ins and outs of the movie that he created. It was an absolute pleasure for Hopi and I to talk to Jeremy as he played a huge part in this game at showing everyone just how the game was back in the 90s with this documentary. We've said it on here many times, if you haven't seen this, do yourself a favor and, and, and please do so. With that being said, grab that drink, sit back, relax, because here we go. I got the world in my palm, lights, camera, action, it's on. I can't describe what I'm feeling, ain't never felt this freedom. I got the world in my palm, lights, camera, action, it's on. Ain't never felt this freedom. Could you, could you say that anything goes, anything goes, anything goes, anything goes, <laughs> That's a weird start. I, know. I just mix it up. What? How are you, Dick? Good, buddy. How you doing? Good, man. Good. 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 Crazy weather. What? Jesus Christ. <laughs> we went through the weather. All, we went through four seasons in 72 hours. <laughs> Honestly. I know we talked about it before, but our weather is a mess. <laughs> so Thursday, snowstorm. Wait, first, let's start last week. Last week, Monday, rain like a bitch. Yep. Rain wind. like you wouldn't believe. Rain and wind. And then Thursday, snowstorm. And uh, I don't even know how many... What we got? It, it was a lot anyway. It rains between 
you know, 20, 25 here. And I, I talked to some of my customers down the so shore. They got like 16 to 18 inches, they said. Holy shit. So, I mean, it, it ranged. Yeah. So that was Thursday. Snowstorm. Yeah. Great. I love having a little bit of snow on the ground. Yeah. You know, lights look good. Plow the driveway. Get my four wheeler. I love it. So much fun. Yep. Friday. Minus 19 when I went to work Friday morning. I had to do a walk on a guy's property for a geothermal job. Minus 19. Didn't have a hat on. And I don't have any hair, as you know. Freezing cold. Saturday, plus 15. What the fuck is going on with our weather? I know. Wait, but Saturday, plus 15, rainstorm. Yeah. And then today, beautiful out, plus 15. Yes. But the ground is a mess. Oh, it's unreal. (laughs) Four seasons. It's crazy. I mean, you... Going into Elmsdale, you look at the sod fields there. And oh, it, it, looks it looks like a lake. lake. I know. Yeah. yeah. I wish it was a lake. Yeah, really. Water's pretty cool. <laughs> anyway. But, but yeah, the freaking weather's just unreal. Weather's been shitty. Yeah. Uh, COVID's been really shitty. Uh, I think yep. my wife said we had 122 cases that were announced today. Oh. Yeah. I never saw that. Yeah. And they do, don't usually announce on the weekends. Yeah. So it's bad. Oh, man. COVID's bad. Uh, St. FX got hammered with COVID. Is that why your game got canceled tonight for hockey? Uh, no. Yes, it was. Yeah. There yeah. was a kid that tested and um, 11-year-old got tested oh. and uh, had COVID. So it, we have some kids that are still 11 years old to play on yeah, our yeah. U13 yeah. team. So uh, they said there's a good chance that we're, we're not going to play. So we canceled, which was, I was okay with. It was yeah. a 545 in Tantalon, which is an hour drive from home. So. Right. And it's always rainy and dark when you drive yeah, there. True. And you had your work party last night. So. And we had our work party last night, yeah, <laughs> which was fun. Yeah, it was yeah. a good time. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we've got the, we're, it looks like we're wrapping up our, our fast pitch, the movie uh, guests on yeah, here. Yeah, that's pretty is, cool. We got the, the the maker of it. Yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy Spear. And, uh, yep. Like I said, I said, I watched it again today. I, I mean, know, I, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I honestly don't know how many times I've watched it, but I mean, uh, I have so many questions for him. Like that's cool. Like yeah. I have so many things to ask him. I'm probably gonna forget a couple of them. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I just want to know what went into making this movie because yeah. it was so good. It was so good. I know it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, wish, I wish somehow another one could be made. Mm. We'll ask him if he can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's gonna happen. Maybe, but. We'll, maybe we'll start. Talking and there's a good chance now. you will forget stuff because you forgot that you wished Lolly a happy birthday two days before you wished him a happy birthday again. I know. Oh, happy birthday! Happy birthday oh fuck, Lolly. we already said Lolly. Yeah. Uh, oh man, starting early. <laughs> starting That's early for the this only one. Only time I'm gonna say Lolly on the podcast today, Lolly. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, lots to get to with uh, Jeremy. Talk yeah. to him about, uh, you know, of course the movie, but of course he went to Yale University. Yeah. Which he touched on in the movie, but did you know that he played in a game where Frank Viola wow. and uh, who was it? Ron Darling. Oh yeah. They went 12 innings. It was nothing, nothing. And I think whoever won was going to the college world series. Wow. And do you remember in the movie where that play where Jeremy was running in the rundown with the guy? Yeah. And then he threw it to the guy at first and went, that was the winning run in that game. That was that game, apparently. No way. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Actually, I didn't know that. Greg Leather sent me a, a text <laughs> yeah. with a, with an article from that game. Oh, shit. Yeah. So. That's cool. Thanks, Greg. I like that. I like. Yeah. I love those little tidbits. So. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. We're going to talk to Jeremy about that. Absolutely. I mean, that's Frank Viola. Yeah. I know. <laughs> that's crazy. You got the, got the hit been, against Frank Viola. Yeah. That's unreal. A long time and apparently Ron Darling in that game, who was playing with Yale yeah. was throwing a no hitter like in the 11th inning. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. 
Anyway, I got to ask you, how are the, how are the podcasts and the downloads going? Very good. Yeah. Very good. So I, I think last time we said you, you were up over what for downloads? Oh, we're up over 40,000. 40,000. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're getting up there, man. It's, uh, it's nice. <laughs> Still blows my mind, but <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I just left, uh, my wife had a Christmas recital today for dance. Hmm. I didn't attend. <laughs> what? No, I had an app on the couch actually. <laughs> and, uh, I was just talking to one of my friends there, Doug, uh, wig talking about the podcast and stuff. And he said, it's, it's amazing how many people you can actually reach out to and touch. And I was telling him, yeah, a lot of those people, they just love hearing the stories of other players yeah. and what they've gone through, where they've been, their experiences, where they've traveled. It's, it's awesome. It is. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. And actually, I, I was thinking about this today when, like, we're going to be talking to Jeremy, who's in Honolulu, yeah. Hawaii, yeah. and he's six hours behind us. Yeah. Last, we were talking to Shane Hunahunu, who was in Australia, and he was, you know, <laughs> yeah. 12 hours ahead of us, 13 yeah. hours. It just, you know, blows my mind, the people we get to talk to, and yeah, it's awesome. you know, I'm grateful for it. Me too. Yeah. So let's right. get to Jeremy. Let's get on to Jeremy. Yo. Here we go. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pad Glad to be here. Thanks for doing what you guys do. Yeah. How's uh how's things going down in Hawaii today? Uh got the whole uh Honolulu Marathon in place. I guess it's not as quite as crazy a situation as usual because I think they have something like upwards of fifteen to twenty thousand uh runners that come every year from Japan. And because of the pandemic, it sort of slowed that whole uh, process so it's it's a mellow one it's a mellow one this year but uh wow. normally it's uh, a lot of fun and uh what? um i think the i think the canyons usually run by my house at about 5 30 in the morning <laughs> so, <laughs> they're on the way to the finish line already <laughs> so 15 to twenty thousand from japan alone from japan alone go there yeah yeah um it's a big you know i guess you know it's a big uh sort of touristic event but you know culturally an exchange and a lot of people in japan just use it as a really uh sort of a, a key point to uh to train for and, and get a visit to hawaii nice. right on. that's awesome right on so yeah you you'd mentioned yeah. there earlier today that you had, you had to park your car like what a mile away from your place just to yeah when it's <laughs> but i realized that it wasn't as crazy as in the years past just because uh they were mellower about letting cars do and they're uh, still an avenue i but it's we're we're right on the loop. We're right on the loop. Nice, uh, right on, right on. So, uh, yeah. so what's going on in li- in your life today? Uh, tell us about the uh, the family and whatnot. Um. Well, I, I'm a I'm a late a late dad. Uh, you know, I have a lot of energy, but as we all know, who those folks who are dads, it takes a lot more out of you than you, you ever imagine it. Yeah. I guess most things in life are. Uh, are sort of like that. You, you never know what you're really getting into until you get into it. And that's usually a good thing, whether it be marriage, uh, playing ball, making a film, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, there's always more to it than you, than you might imagine. But at the same time, that's, that's what makes it rewarding. That's oh, for sure. So I saw some, uh, you know, posts on social media that you, that you did. Is that, is that your son? That's a, that's a picture. I have a uh, twin boys. They're, they're in ninth grade. Uh, they just turned 15. One has uh, been blessed to throw lefty. Uh, he's kind of ambidextrous, but uh, most people know that 
uh, the quickest way onto a rocket <laughs> if you throw as a left. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you throw it relatively hard, uh, uh, all the better. Yep, for sure. Now, so, twin boys are they? Are they? Are they both into baseball? Are they? No, one survived uh, like Pinto. They call it over here, and I was just, uh, uh, I was just so happy that he didn't walk into a swing and bat, take a ball off the face or whatever. And he he did his one one season and called it a day, and that's fine. He was a little bit of like Ferdinand the Bull, you know, it's kind of picking daisies in the outfield, and uh, <laughs> didn't really want to get. Into the first day he had a tryout, they were making the kids, you know, they're five or six years old and they're running from first base to second or first to third. And it was a windy day and he kind of was doing spins on his way to second and putting his hands in the air and smiling and going, feel the wind, feel the wind. <laughs> and I was like kind of aghast, you know, hoping this guy might have a little speed in his body like his like his dad but, uh, <laughs> he was more interested in uh feeling the elements and i was like okay he's he may not be on this journey but uh he out, he's actually turned out to be quite a uh he's on the cheer team he does dance he's in musical theater he does tumbling he's gonna go out for uh springboard diving uh this oh, week shit, that's great so he's, uh, yeah he's like a kinetic uh machine so to speak wow incredible that's awesome so yeah. before we get into the to the game of fast pitch, uh, tell us about getting your start in the game. You know, of in the game of baseball when you were younger. Okay, well, this may have come through in the film, but you know, I pretty much had a very non traditional entry into the world of fast pitch, into the world of sports. I always had this sort of kind of alternative background. I grew up in New York City. I grew up then when there was really no organized youth ball. I'd go down to the uh, sort of dog walk parks and sort of a really dark, dingy kind of unkept fields near me. And uh, I'd play kind of pickup ball with mostly Puerto Rican or Dominican kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, we would self-hit. And the first field I used to play on was uh, right on Riverside Drive near the West Side Highway in New York City. And uh, you couldn't, you couldn't self-hit the ball to left field because it was there were cars it was you know just over what would be his shortstop's head there was a full-on you know you know four-lane car <laughs> car <laughs> not really a freeway but it was a, a bypass area and then center field i guess second base was like an oak tree and uh, there were dog dog poop all around the field and that's how i learned to play and you kind of had to self-hit and, uh, you know, usually it was a game of three on four or four on five or something. Mm -hmm. So I really had no organized ball. And then I had a chance to go to a uh, New England prep school where my father had gone and I had no idea what I was getting into. But lo and behold, they actually had organized sports. And wow. so at ninth grade, that was the first time I ever played on an organized team in my life. Wow. And uh, I was always, you know, streetwise and athletic and We'd make up games in the street and did crazy stuff, but there was no structure. There was no instruction uh, whatsoever. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got there and I started at the lowest level of a baseball team. They had, you know, some uh, student assistant who was like had never played ball in his life, coaching the team with a music teacher. And I was like, oh my god, they just didn't. You know, they had, they were just assigned the the youngest baseball players in the school. But lo and behold, by my senior year, I, you know, I 
made like an all league team. And I, had, I think out of a 14 game season, I was a small guy, a middle infielder, but I hit, I don't know, six or eight home runs in a 12 or 14 game schedule. And I wow. got a little bit of attention and, uh, you know, I, I said, well, what, I, I think I can do this at the next level. And, uh, I had applied early to, uh, an Ivy league school and they'd heard about me, but I wasn't like in the normal sort of system of recruitment, but they knew of me. And when I got there, I, I primarily walked on, although, you know, it was, it's a little different than it was a little bit more free form and, uh, mm-hmm. they had double sport athletes and, you know, they knew that some football players weren't really in the baseball, uh, carousel, but they knew that they could play baseball and lo and behold, you know, half our team was, uh, were football players who played baseball or even actually some hockey players who played oh, baseball. Yeah. And so, um, our coach had walked into a, an arena of talent. Uh, it was one of the most successful baseball teams, uh, in the history of Yale. We went to NCAAs. Ron Darling was my teammate yeah. in college. He, uh, he was recruited as a shortstop, uh, quite, um, uh, not strangely, but you know, he grew a lot and he had such a live arm and he didn't really move like a shortstop at the college level. And they said, Hey, why don't you try pitching? He had never really pitched. And, uh, two and a half, three years later, he was a first round draft pick, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Texas Rangers. And at one point was considered to be the number one draft choice in the country. But, uh, he ended up going, I think number eight in the country or nine that year. Wow. So it was, a uh, <laughs> yeah. A real interesting journey. I was raw. I didn't have, uh, I had a lot of speed, a lot of quickness, a lot of good eye-hand coordination, but I really didn't have the pedigree or the background that, you know, basically all my other teammates had. I never played a game of summer ball in my life, for, for instance. And yeah. so, you know, when I think about what I'm doing now as a father, it just it's just kind of mind-boggling the way that the game sh- and youth sports has shifted in terms of, uh, what is expected uh, of kids and the private lessons and the knowledge and, you know, the, the professionalism of a 13 year old swing at the age of 13. It doesn't mean, you know, all these kids who look like they know what they're doing. There's, there's still the same amount of roster spaces on teams. There's still right. the number of college programs, but it is competitive as heck. That's all I can say. It's, yeah. it's really something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now it's yeah. it's funny you brought up Ron Darling because I, I had to ask about that Frank Viola Ron Darling game because yeah, I mean that that had to be pretty crazy. Uh, that has gained a lot of traction over the years. It's become a lot more famous a game uh, than we realized when we we're actually going through it. It was uh, the NCAA regional, and we thought you know we were one of the two better teams in that four team regional and the winner would go on to Omaha. And that was pretty unheard of for a Yale team, uh, back in the day, but uh, it turned out we, we, we locked horns with them and Ronnie was just on fire. Frank Boy, Viola was incredible. And, uh, uh, we lost and I was involved in a game, uh, in a double steal on the last inning, uh, Ronnie threw, I think 11 and one third innings of no hit ball, which is Jeez, still, that's crazy. <laughs> NCAA record. Yeah. They had guys who were, you know, had their number three hitter, I think was, a it was hitting 500 for the season or something. And he made, <laughs> Ronnie made I mean, he had incredible stuff that day. Um, but 
getting back to that game, you know, they've now talked about it as being the most famous college game in ever played. And it's like, really? I was there. I, <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't think that. I didn't know that. But it, it certainly cool. gained a lot of attraction because it's been written about a lot. And the fact that Ron and uh, Frank Viola ended up becoming, you know, very successful and famous major league players who ended up playing on the same team with the Mets at some point. Mm. John Franco was on that team and he didn't even get in the game. And, you know, there was uh, <laughs> just a, whole, a whole backdrop of uh, stuff that kind of this nexus of like really an, you know, famous baseball writer was in the stands writing about it. He ended up writing for uh, the New Yorker magazine, a famous, uh, famous uh, piece mm-hmm. that centered on the game and kind of wove the history of the game and in, in the context of sitting in the stands and the whole history of Yale baseball and presidents who played for Yale and, you know, on and on. It just was a beautifully written literary piece and all these things just sort of, you know, came together. Um, another aside is that a lot of people don't know that Bart Giamatti was actually the president of Yale when I was there. And he was a huge Red Sox fan and a baseball fan. And he was so incredibly, incredibly, you know, literate and astute. And he would make comments about the game and the nature of it. And he was at a lot of those games. I believe he he saw that game, too. And uh, he uh, left Yale a few years later and became the commissioner of Major League Baseball. And, you know, decided <laughs> a whole Pete Rose uh, scandal. And, and you know, yeah. I, I believe would have been uh, an incredible uh commissioner but you know who knows it was uh he walked into a harness nest so to speak he sure did i I'm guess sure he did <laughs> yeah a lot of people weren't happy with some of his decision making but he was certainly a man of great uh, uh moral compass and uh um really loved the game and you know saw it in a bigger context than just you know um balls and strikes so to speak right right right. Right. now you know before we get into the uh into the fast pitch movie i gotta ask what uh you know on in the movie we saw you know what you know how you start in the game with the new jersey there what what uh between your time from yale and when you joined them what uh what were you doing well i again had a different career path i was the only art major at yale who played on a varsity team I was a studio art major, so I painted and made sculpture in the midst of, you know, playing sports. And I, uh, you know, distinctly remember having a conversation with uh, one of my painting advisors. And he was like kind of cornering me and just telling me, hey, you know, this this sports thing you're doing, um, you can't really you can't really do both. You know, you either got to choose. And <laughs> here I am, a 20 year old, you know, student at a liberal arts school that's supposed to be demonstrating, you know, a uh, sort of wide base of, uh, of knowledge and, and and putting people out into the world with that perspective. But I, I kind of understood what he was saying, but I was like, okay, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but um, nah, I think I'm going to keep going with both. And, you know, I think too, it's sort of indicative of like how things have sort of changed over the last 20, 30 years. You know, we all wear so many hats these days. We live in a pretty hybrid culture. And, uh, you know, uh, we're just asked to do with a lot of things. And I think it's partially due to the information age, the way that people have to um, make ends meet. You know, I, I'm kind of glad that, you know, there was a time and probably I was on the tail end of it when people thought, oh, if you don't get 
drafted in your sport. You don't play professional. It's over. You know, right. you did college, you did whatever you did. It's over. Done. You know, go, uh, go find that nine to five job and sell insurance for the rest of your life and provide for your family. And, and you know, to me, that was not my journey and kind of a dreary kind of end game, if you ask me. And I always kind of kept the two at least afloat in my life. And if you look at, you know, sports today, and people recognize the, the idea you see it in marketing and, and TV and, the idea that people can just, you know, never give up, keep doing it. It's probably the, yeah. a slogan for a night or something. You, <laughs> yeah. you see people, you know, 90 years old who are running the marathon here right, today, exactly. probably. And, yeah. you know, it's applauded now. It used to be like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Why are you doing that? Why would you want to pursue this? You know, that's just for kids. Well, you know, I think in a good way, we've, we've had sort of a, a paradigm shift in our culture to like, to applaud people who who want to pursue things that they care about, and a lot of times that's sport or physical activity, of and uh, so I think we're better off for it. And uh, so, getting back to your question there, I, I I think you know I had this dual sort of existence where I was making art in New York, and I was creating some sort of a career path with that, but I felt you know something was missing, and I I still played. I got into some local softball leagues in New York and, you know, it was like modified, no bunning, no stealing, 10 men, but there were some great athletes. I was playing on, you know, some, you know, city championship or local league championship teams. And there were guys who, you know, seven or eight of our starters were D1, XD1 players and other guys who played college or they were, you know, just ultimately really good softball players. But it was, that was the context of it. And it was sort of like, I never knew this whole other world of fast pitch, yeah. and the travel and the money ball tournaments and the world tournaments and the international game. I just had no idea it existed. Oh. And um, so I, I, I did detail that a little bit in the movie. There's a little bit more backdrop. And for the purposes of the film, I kind of like, I won't say I glossed it over, but I sort of simplified my entry into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, for the purposes of the film, like, that's that's pretty much how I got into it. I sort of was missing something later in my life. I was in my mid thirties by the time I I joined a, a major men's fast team, my fast pitch team, and uh, you know I was off and running. And I guess I was you know still hungry, hungry for something. Oh, and, uh, love it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, I, uh, was there? What was it about the game? You know, when you first was it? What well, I should say was there something about the game when you first joined it? Like, you know, at the higher like level there, like was there something about yeah. it that you were like, man, this is great? Well, yeah, the pitching primarily. I mean, yeah. you know, the pitching set the tone, and you know, because of the speed of the game, defensively too, it was like okay, the, the stakes are are higher here because the ball comes off that bat when it's struck well with you know a huge amount of velocity and, and quickness. And I, I love that. I love yeah. the shortness of the game and the speed of it, which in some ways I felt like might've matched up with my, my personal skills in some ways, like kind of baseball in a band box and making it sort of shorter and quicker. Right. And I really enjoyed it. I, I admittedly, and it's evidence in the film, I struggled with the hitting. I think if I were to look back on the whole journey, I probably just would have committed to being a right-handed hitter and staying the course, but I would have had to, you know, really see a lot of top level fast pitch and really just, you know, make sure I was 
shortening it up and doing the right things to become more proficient as a right-handed hitter. But, you know, that wasn't my case. I had a lot of other things going on when I was 35. And for me to, like, take off and play at the time was a 60- to 80-game season was kind of kind of crazy. <laughs> Especially at that age. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> really, though. And trying to learn how to slap bunt from the other side of the plate. And, yeah. So Nick's, Nick's taking yeah. all the credit for that. For that uh, yeah, it was Nick's idea. Nick's idea. Is that true? <laughs> and, well, he should. Well, he should. I, I, I literally never, I never gave it a thought. And I was like, wait a minute. And he said, do it. And I said, okay. I think it was in Finley, Ohio, the first time I ever tried. And I got on base two out of four at bats and that was good enough for me to like say, yeah let's keep it you know as ugly as it might have looked <laughs> i was like hey it's a i can be ugly and effective yeah, it, it worked for Still todd single... look work for todd king his yeah. whole career Jeez. oh yeah well todd was a yeah he made he he made it look a lot more elegant than my style <laughs> yeah. I, I well he always batted left <laughs> yeah that's true yeah, yeah. um yeah. i gotta I, i'm gonna jump deep dive into this movie here first i gotta thank you for making this movie because i don't know how many times i've watched it he watched it again today i watched it again today <laughs> you know just for for you know for purposes but uh how i'm did, glad someone is well thank you and oh thank man you i've for, watched uh, it many times for uh being fans of it and, and and doing what you guys do i haven't watched a film for i don't know 20 years or something oh, it's been I... a long time to watch it yep wow so how did it, it all fits with me? I, oh yeah. Before I got into TV, I'm thinking, should I watch the film? I was like, no, why, why would I do that? Uh, it, it's sort of just part of my, my being, you know, I was like, That's right. uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, I had a grandmother and she was very well read and everything. And she used to talk to me when I was young and she'd say, you know, history, uh, culture is kind of like when you forget all the dates and you forget all the, the numbers and then uh, the names, what you're left is the culture, the culture of, of what you've just studied. And I'm like, yeah, that's good enough for me. I think yeah. that's kind of how I feel about the film and my journey. It's just like the things you kind of resonate are going to stay with you. And and that that's that's kind of where I'm at with that with the filmmaking. That's awesome. Right on. So how did it all come about? You know, what was the, what was the motivation behind it? Um, I think it was, you know, always trying to trying to add some meaning to what what I was doing in my life and always finding uh, kind of an adventure and a challenge so you know I had a challenge laid out in front of me on the field I had a challenge in front of me artistically or or from a narrative storytelling point of view and uh, I'd never made a film before but I was like I just sort of woke up kind of in somewhere on the journey in Ashland Ohio or somewhere and I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea about this. I had no idea about the people who inhabited this little sporting universe or yeah. international sporting universe. And uh, I said, I just got to tell the story. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to make a film. And awesome. most people who knew, like, you're out of your mind. But um, I got a lot of gifts from my family. I think my mother was a huge influence on me. And the fact that she was fearless, she's always take on projects and never look back. And I, I think I inherited that from her. I saw it up close and I was like, well, well what do I got to lose? You know, nobody else is doing it. Let's go. Yeah. So now I, I, I read, was it originally supposed to be a documentary about Shane? I think I read something about that or is that true? Um, I think, you know, 
Well, as filmmaking goes or even writing or whatever, you, sometimes you come up with a concept and you sort of like kind of chew on it a little bit. And that's sort of your initial uh, impetus or something. Mm-hmm. And then it morphs into something else. And I think originally when I first met Shane and saw his the accolades, and I thought, oh, this is like this is a beautiful kind of like surprising identity story and sort of folkloric, you know, like. Um, a claim that this guy has in a small town of Ashland and he was such a celebrity and he was a character. And I thought, Oh, you know, I could maybe do a film just based on him. But then I started looking around and meeting more people and I realized, Hey, this is going to be an ensemble piece. There's just too many varied, interesting, wacky characters basically who inhabit this world. And I think people would be really surprised to see that this is going on. And, um, that's sort of where I, I kind of expanded the roles of people and expanded the idea of what this film could be about. Right on. I, man, I, there, I have so many questions about it. Like, <laughs> like that's why we're here. Randy. That's why we're here. But, uh, uh, was there a lot of, uh, you know, film from it that actually, you know, that you didn't put out? Like, was there a lot of, you know, that didn't make the final cut? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, at the end of the day, we had shot, uh, you know, between my personal uh, filming and then when I had crews involved, uh, there was probably over 200 hours of footage that was filmed. And then, you know, you're talking about condensing that to an hour and a half. Wow. And yeah. uh, you know, some of that hour and a half is uh, archival and, you know, sourced from different things. And, you know, you, you, you know, so at the end, you, you have an idea about what you want to do and what you want to get in your film. And a lot of times you end up cutting it. It's sort of like there's a, a, a term in, I don't know, documentary editing circles. It's like, you got to kill your babies because it's painful. It's like, Oh my God, this, I want this in there, but you have to be brutally honest and say, Hey, mm. this has a reason for being in the film. It helps drive it. it, you know, and that's why it's there. It may not even be that beautifully shot, but we need this in there. And there'll be other things that like, oh, I love that guy. I love that interview or that. What about that home run or that, you know, that beautiful, you know, unless it has a reason for being in the film, you just can't throw it in there. Otherwise, you're not, you know, true to the the needs of the of the of the narrative drive of a film. And it's hard. It's hard. I learned a lot. And editing is a is a huge part of documentary filmmaking. You know, it's uh, it's actually way more uh you know, some editors actually get um, co-direct credits on documentaries because it's that heavily involved in terms of uh, uh, forcing or crafting the narration, you know, the narrative, I mean, of the film. Sure. Um, whereas yeah. a feature film, you know, you kind of have your story, it's already laid out, you have the shots to fit it, and an editor comes in and sort of, you know, fine-tunes and crafts it in a way. But documentaries, it's uh, it's it's... It's not for the light of heart when you get in that edit room. It's it's long and arduous. It's just like, wow, how many do we have to keep looking at this or you know, revisiting something or trimming it? And they're hard decisions to make. But um, that's that's why it's rewarding, you know, that when that thing flashes up in, on the screen as a, a final film in your first film festival or tv or a, a video launch it's just like wow I, I you know you kind of like have this huge welding of feeling that kind of gets up inside you and it like shed shed tears basically no, no, doubt. Yeah. no doubt 
Uh, That's how hard it is. I wanted to ask when yeah. uh, the Pete Porcelli portion of the film. Um, yeah. When, like, did you have somebody in particular that would just follow him around to film his antics type idea, or were you part of that at any point? Uh, oh, I was very much part of it. You know, yeah. I sort of, um, you know, I, I think too that let's be honest. When you make films or you make a documentary, there's manipulation. I mean, the world doesn't just come to you right. just because you have a kid. It, you have to manipulate in a way that is inherent with your craft. It's storytelling. It's like somebody writing a novel. Well, you can't just write every darn thing that comes to your mind in the world. It's like you have to make it work. You have to craft things. You have to see if that falls into place. And so you have intuitive ideas about why people tell you should be in the film. And it's not until you get down there and you film him and he's, you know, oh, uh, where are you going, Pete? Um, actually, I got my manicure right now. You know, uh, hey, can we film it? You know, and it's like, <laughs> ding, that's a great B-roll shot. You know, who else in the past <laughs> yeah. is getting a personal manicure in the midst of a, you know, a, a, a day of work and and, and his, uh, you know, sort of Tampa Bay uh, operational world. It's like, uh, you know. With monogrammed, uh, with monogrammed towels in the in the in the bathrooms and the rugs uh, around his office. So, yeah. um, it's you know those are the little moments. Like you know, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's run with it. I didn't know that was going to happen, but yeah, that can be useful. Um, but I I, I I go down to Pete. You know, we would talk and I say, hey, we're talk, hoping to come down. Would there be an opportune time? And so you, you either revolve it around a potential, you know, a, a series, and then you say, "Hey, we'd like to, you know, be able to interview at home." And so you have to kind of build these things, and uh, sure. you know, you're constantly abuzz when you're in the midst of a film. Like, how's this going to relate? What's going to work? What's not going to work? Uh, gee, I never thought of that. You know, you never know where an idea comes from. You know. A cameraman may say, hey, I just saw so-and-so. Can we, do you think it's worth, yep, let's go. That's a great idea. Let's go grab that guy in the stands. I never saw him. And you, you set up an interview, and a lot of times you're flying by the seat of your pants, but there's always something in the back of your mind driving the reasoning behind it. Like, you know, maybe maybe this could work. Maybe that could work. Yeah, Sweet. sure. Man. That's the great insight to, to hear from. Uh, actually, on the topic of Pete, I, I saw from a picture that you sent me, you actually got to play something for the smokers? Uh, yep. There's some strange ironies in the film, and a lot of people have have, uh, have implored me way back in the day, you should have done a fast pitch, too, because you could have followed up on this and that. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there's some stuff that you could have. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Would have been pretty remarkable. But, um, you know, I, I was in the sort of great Ashland uh, – um, tradition of putting the teams together. I ended up playing for Heflin Builders, who, um, if you recall, we're, we were always in the hunt. We were always at sort of a top 10 team at the ISC. Sometimes we finished fourth or fifth, maybe usually eighth or through 12, somewhere in that range. But we got a lot of bang for our, our buck. And I think at some point, Pete's finances started, uh, you know, he realized how much he was spending on his teams. He'd already won a world championship. So he's probably scaling back and saw an opportunity to merge with the Heflin team. So we became the Heflin smokers. Oh. I think that was in 99. And so we were actually, you know, 
from being whatever I, we were with Ashland, 37th in the world or 28th in the world, <laughs> to uh, you know, we were preseason ranked, I believe, number one team in the ISC um, when we formed the, as the Heflin Smokers. He, he had loaded up his guys, and we Heflin brought over about a core group. And, uh, you know, I think he saw it as an opportunity to um, put a quality team together and uh, – maybe not spend as much money and, and share the share the, uh, the sort of sweat equity of Heflin with his own finances and the people he had already kind of lined up for, for the team. Right. Right. But, uh, yeah. So I got to run through the smoke and, uh, you know, (laughs) it was was serious. We weren't as far, we weren't as full fledged, but yeah, we had seven or eight uniforms. We had the throwbacks. We had the whole deal. And, uh, once in a while, uh, smoke and Joe would come out and smoke a stogie and run around the field. And, and, uh, it, <laughs> it so, was fun. That's was so fun. wild. I have to admit, but, you know, going back to, uh, Pete, I think a lot of people, you know, they sort of, they've asked me in the past, like, Oh, well, what do you think of him? Like, ah, he was terrible for the game or he wrecked it. And, you know, did you like him as a person? And, you know, I have to say, and I think I've heard Nick even reference it, you know, you may not always sort of condone the way people behave or what they do. And certainly did a lot of illicit things, you know, outside the sport in order to, uh, to make his world work. But in the context of taking the field or playing against him, you know, I think that's one of the aspects of the film that always, um, sort of intrigued me was that, you know, when you play sports, you you cross over so many thresholds. There's so many levels of sort of uh, camaraderie, acceptance, and you meet all kinds of characters. And I thought in this fast pitch world, it was like, how diverse a character group can you get between the Darren Zach, the Pete Porcelli's, the the Shanes, the 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 Nick McCurries, and you know uh, the native. Um, uh, Lakota members of the North Americans and, you know, just people on different, different journeys. But what, what kind of binded everybody together was, you know, this love and desire to play sports at a high level. And, you know, for me, that's, that was always an interesting grab, you know, something to, to really bind people. And so I've known in my own personal journey that, you know, I came from very diverse background, different background from a lot of, you know, Ball players who I ended up playing with in college or wherever, or even in fast pitch. And, you know, they accepted me because I had a certain skill set and I accepted them. And it kind of makes you, you tighter um, mm-hmm. on so many levels. So, like, in a weird way, yeah, I felt a, a camaraderie with Pete in a way, not that he was my closest friend by any means. And, you know, but I'm, I'm not a person who tends to be you know, harshly judgmental. I, I, I'd like to be a more optimistic person. And, you know, I think in the context of like the current politic that's going on and the toxicity that, um, our country is up against and parts of the world, um, you know, that like, if more people played sports, more people were on teams, more people, you know, <laughs> uh, went after kind of, challenges in front of them collectively that we might be better off uh, that might be yeah a little simplistic but I, I do believe that people's personal journeys are marked by 
a lot of different things. And the people who played sports many times are better off, you know, for it and their and their sort of character makeup. Not always, but many times they are. Yeah, I can agree. That's very well said. Um I, I gotta jump back to the whole Nick McCurry and Ashland thing. Because we love I, Nick. I gotta ask about uh how did you end up with Ashland? Because I know you said in the film that you know he was looking for a shortstop. But walk us through that chat, because I'm guessing it wasn't just a two-minute phone call. <laughs> um, well, I don't even know if we had cell phones there. So it wasn't a phone call as much as it was an aside at a tournament. Oh, hey, okay. You know, would you ever consider, uh, hey, you know, would you ever consider coming over and, uh, you know, maybe put, we'll put you out there and, you know, give you this opportunity and that. And, you know, that's pretty much how it went. I think I, 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 you know, I'm, I was conflicted at the time because I consider myself a fairly loyal person. If I want to, you know, see something do, and I'm committed to doing something that, uh, I'm going to do that. But I did make a hard choice. And after a lot of talk and, you know, I think it was before the ISC, uh, paperwork was due. Uh, I left the New Jersey Gators. Um, I felt I wasn't necessarily getting the opportunities I needed as much to uh, um, blossom in the sport. Mm-hmm. And Nick gave me that opportunity. And, uh, you know, I heard that I played against him once or twice. And, you know, I always thought he was certainly capable. And, and there's a reason why he's, you know, one of the stars, if not the star of the film. Uh, he has a sort of uh, unique every man's kind of a personality to him. You know, he, he, he's just really what you see is what you get in a really, really, um, kind of nice way. And, uh, um, I still see it, Nick, at some of the, uh, I played in the, uh, over 60 ASA nationals. And we lost the Ohio battery in the finals in Houston two months ago. Oh. And you know what? If there's anybody I want to lose to, it's Nick. There you I go. love it. I love it. He's there all the time. He's still the same guy. What you see is what you get with Nick. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, he had the biggest Rolodex in the game. And, yeah, he's had to uh, make a lot of tough calls and pull people in. And, and he hasn't always um, – you know, historically, I'm sure you'll find a lot of people say, well, he promised me this, he promised me that. And not always, you know, coming through 100 percent, but it wasn't uh, because of his. Uh, it was always with the right intention in mind. It was yeah. just hard to do what he's always aimed to do. And mm-hmm. and we all know that sport is, you know, there's a, if you have a big, big wallet. It's a lot easier to produce. Um, with some of the things that you promise, but at the end of the day, he, he'll always promise putting a quality team out there and yeah. doing what he can with yeah. what he's got. And anybody who sees that will respect him for sure. So, so was your drawing feature the the vehicle he was providing you? Was the, what was it, Hopi? Eighty three Buick, Buick Regency. <laughs> <laughs> it was diesel. What was it? I remember that thing. Oh, yeah. I would drive from New York. I, I would drive from New York. Uh, you know, my memory's a little foggy, but pretty sure the way working, it would be hot dries. I have all the windows down. And boy, when I pulled up to the Holland Tunnel or some line or a toll getting out of New York City, 
I kind of like slumped down in my chair a little bit, put my hat down low. Because <laughs> that thing was diesel. It was set up for diesel. And that thing was spewing smoke out the, the exhaust <laughs> and coming to the car. And anybody who was near me was 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 sharing that, that air. And I, I felt bad as heck. But you know what? One Philip, I never had to stop. Five, yeah. <laughs> 500 miles from New York City to Ashland. And uh, it made it in one entire Philip fill up, fill yeah. up on diesel. It was pretty awesome. Wow, that's crazy. Nick told us about the uh, the story about it being stripped when you showed up. Did... <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, I think my New York my New York roots uh, showed their their their, uh, their, uh, their face on that one. But I had no. I you know what's funny? I never even noticed it. And I think I got there. What the heck? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What did you do? And I'm thinking, oh my God, did I just, you know, ram somebody and never, never notice it on the, I mean, I had no idea what it was talking about. Then I looked down and I was like, ooh, I think the whole fence, the bumper, the whole setup is gone, the grill and everything. I was like, um, gee, Nick, I, I, I don't know what to say, <laughs> but you know. Still getting good gas mileage though. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I got to ask any good stories from the love shack or, or what? <laughs> are you allowed to tell us? <laughs> Shane, Shane couldn't tell us. Uh, no, not, no comment. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually thought there was better stories. Just kind of like the traffic in the, in the parking lot that the love shack shared with like the moose, the the moose bar whatever the heck it was called that 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 uh that uh um i think shane nicknamed the moose man what was it the moose lodge he called it something funny but it was uh yeah it was like it was always lively there because people would just sort of pull up to that bar and when it was closing time they sort of just hang out right in our doorsteps or say hey is shane and you know shane knew everybody shane knew everybody (laughs) but um that was a single wall construction that 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 you love Jack that yellow painted somewhat <laughs> decrepit uh, home that we were put up in and uh, boy you couldn't get enough fans in that house during the middle of the day if we were if we were left there to, to our own devices it was it was just like a it was I don't know it was a movie set it was really something else in there <laughs> Shane told us it was nice on the inside. <laughs> Uh, okay. No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Too funny. Yeah, it was uh, not the uh, appointed vintage uh, household. Let's put it that way. Everything was falling apart. Perfect. Perfect. Um, I got to ask about your uh, your first ISCs. Um, what do you remember about that? And you know, was it you know everything that you you thought it was going to be? Well, it doesn't fully jibe with the construct of the film, but I actually went to the, my first ISC under a lot of duress. I had popped the hamstring 10 days before it, playing in a local tournament, and I was with the Gators. Um, and I had also gotten this idea. I wanted to start getting a film crew, and I started to like begin to film a little bit of like what this world was about, not knowing that it was always, it was going to be part of my Ashland, that Ashland was really going to be the center of it or that, you know, I was going to focus on Shane at that point. It was just like, Hey, 
let's just go. I got I have this idea. Let's. There's a film here, and I'm not sure what it is. But my first time I had ever gone out with a film crew. I had never made even like a home video before, and uh, I had a, a torn hamstring. I got cortisone shots in it. I did everything I could. I was having uh, some relationship issues. I was on the road. I was like, oh my god, everything's just like crazy. But it all played out, and um, it was in Sioux City, Iowa, and uh, uh, I I played really well defensively. So on a personal level, I thought, wow, I'm doing my job here. Mm -hmm. um, I think I I got a few at bats, and you know, kind of got the nature of the game. But I was really, really taken in by like the whole, you know, I I don't know if you've ever been to Sioux City, but the backdrop, and it was like. There was like industrial yards behind us. And I think there were cornfields and it was just like, there was really a slice out of Americana. And I thought this is exactly the kind of world I thought it was going to be. Um, and, you know, that's when I started conducting our first interviews. I think the North Americans and they were there and I got to, you know, meet a few of the other top players in the game and get some footage and see, you know, Pete Meredith throw for the first time. And, uh, a few other people. And it was just like Mike Pietnik. We actually lost, um, I think an in extra innings or, or in the last inning to, uh, to the farm that year. And we were just the lowly New Jersey Gators, like upstart New Zealanders and kids who hadn't really played in the game very long. So we, we did pretty well. And, uh, it was like, you know, the beginning of my like wide eyed journey into the sport. It was like, this is really, really cool. Right on. I got to ask about, oh. uh, I got to ask about Bruce Franklin. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. His, uh, okay. How long was that car ride with him? First of all, because he seemed like he was okay. going to lose it. He was pretty angry. <laughs> so I don't know if this is, this is too much information for the purpose of this interview, but I'm going to give you really, you know, I said, I sort of gloss over my first entry into the game. Um, and, uh, this is really what happened. I tried out from, uh, I told you that I was playing in sort of local modified leagues in New York city. And we had a bunch of really good players mm -hmm. and I had heard about, uh, through some of the players that they were having these national tryouts for the Maccabi team that goes to Israel. So my father, uh, not by practice, but by bloodline is, uh, is Jewish. And I had never, I was, a, I wasn't raised Jewish, but you know, my bloodline is is half Jewish or close to it. And they have uh, an Olympic style event in Israel every four years and fast pitch softball was one. So I'd never even heard about really fast pitch. I kind of heard about Eddie Fainer and I knew there was this windmill version of the game, but up close, I'd never seen it. So uh, Steve Shucker, who ended up being my teammate for many years on the, on the fast pitch record, he and I, uh, drove down to Philadelphia and, and made made the team based on our, you know, baseball skills, our speed, our defense, and uh, and so forth. Having never played the game, so we went to Israel and, and got a silver medal that year. So <laughs> one of the players on that team was Kenny Erickson, um, who uh -huh. was the yeah one of the USA. Uh, um, he was the the head coach of the USA women's team for many years and uh he also had played on the national team but he was the one who sort of like opened our eyes to the game it was like we're only in israel for two weeks but 
we were like, you live in Florida and you play for a team called Larry Miller in Salt Lake City <laughs> and you play games a year and you have fancy uniform and like what is going on here so he explained kind of the construct of this you know what was considered the open the open men's game um and you know the top sort of premier teams in it and he said you know there's one out of new york state called otb or heflin and uh you know i can make a recommendation that you guys try out for the team so um that was 93 that we made that team. Um, the whole world was really exciting. Softball had just been opened up to me in a way I never thought existed. And uh, the next year I went out, Steve Shocker couldn't make the tryout, but I, I, I sort of had it. There had a little bit of an open tryout and Heflin had me come down and I made the team. So I ended up traveling with Heflin um, for the first two or three months of that season. And it was like Frankie Perez, George Sepulveda, Stevie Price, Randy Peck, Jeff Seed, you know, uh, Byron DeMoe, they were all on that team. And I was like, this wow. is crazy. I, I never knew this existed. So all of a sudden I'm thrust into this. Bruce Franklin was the only guy from my area who was actually on this New York based team. And uh, he and I ended up sharing a lot of car rides up to meet Tom McAvoy and the team van that would leave from uh, Middletown area. And most of that, at least for those days, like half of their season, if not more, was played in Canada at, at you know, sort of the uh, the Waterloo, Perth, uh, yeah. I think, right. uh, yeah. Captured Mines, and they played up there. And, you know, they picked up a lot of the Halifax guys, too, at some point. Um, I think Dwayne Miller might have yeah. been on that team for year. Um, but you know, that was my really my true, true introduction to ISC fast pitch. I never had played. Um, prior to that, I ended up, I think my first guy I ever faced was uh Andy Jackson up in Milverton or somewhere. And uh I ended up walking, you know, and like Bruce Franken said, Hey, you can do that regularly you're going to be, you're going to have success in this game. Cause I guess he thought I was, I was seeing the ball. Well, well <laughs> I didn't walk very much in my career. Let's put it that way. But I was lucky enough to do it the first time around. And, and I, and I realized that these, these car rides were just, it was crazy. I couldn't do it at that time in my life. So I ended up only going on about four weeks with them, but I got a sense of what the hell was going on with this game. And, uh, um, Bruce was like, my my ride my ride so he and i kind of got close for a while um we would end up driving his car and he would drop me off at where i rented a car left a car near his house and and he would actually drive into new york city the next morning after tournaments because he was a, he was actually a, a school teacher at a prestigious like upscale school in new york city which was very surprising to me if you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so I got to, I got a window into his world. And so he felt comfortable with me. And, um, you know, I think that car ride, uh, was emblematic of like, you know, him being Bruce and knowing who I was and being comfortable just, you know, just, you know, let it, let it fly, whatever was on his mind. He was a little bit angry that day, but he had anger issues. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's well-documented. He, uh, you know, was, a 
a very, very gifted Division One shortstop. He played at Coastal Carolina and was going to be drafted or did get drafted, excuse me. And, um, you know, I think he'd already been drafted pretty, you know, 20th round, 20th or 30th round, something like that. Not a high draft, uh, draft pick, but he had the opportunity to play professional baseball. And uh, he broke his, he shattered his wrist yeah. uh, on a cooler after, uh, towards the end of his college career and, and never suited up and never, you know, fulfilled that contract. So he was always, you know, haunted by that. And, uh, um, but, you know, I, I mean, there was, maybe there was another film there, but Bruce, Bruce, uh, he, he, uh, he was, he knew the game really, really well. He was a very, very insightful guy. Like he, and I think that's kind of what in general, like I was so taken with when I first uh, traveled with Heflin that first month mm-hmm. or four or five weeks, it was like the quality of players and their knowledge of the game. I was like, these guys are really, really professional at what they do. And that, that sort of speaks to, you know, a lot of the core of that team. Well, Darren Ray from New Zealand was also on that team and Stevie Price and Jeff Seed and Randy Peck. These guys were just, you know, really, really knew how to handle themselves and approach the game. And I learned a lot, a lot from them in terms of the, you know, yeah, how to, how to basically, uh, uh, approach the game right so that was, that was the beginning but it hadn't been it wasn't my true beginning that's like the next year when i actually um bill culligan who was the new jersey gators uh sponsor started his team the next year and he had been an assistant coach with heflin that year that i first started and he had asked me to come out with my friend steve shocker and so we became new Gators that year and I think he grabbed Darren Ray and brought over about four or five Kiwis that year um, on on mostly on Darren's advice from his knowledge of players uh, mm-hmm. who would be good fits and then that's really the year that I, I started the whole the whole commitment to the sport right but right. I, I had a glimpse of it through Heflin and Bruce and um, sharing car rides with all those guys and Awesome. Um, that's, that's, Hey, that's a great, that's a great backstory for, I mean, I just asked about Bruce and I mean, that's, you know, I love hearing backstories like that. Those are, those are always awesome to hear. I mean, Bruce, Bruce Franklin, as angry as he was, and he's like, he would always ask me, why am I doing this? What the hell? Even my mom asked, that's right. But he was always, he was always conflicted because it was such a big commitment to go do this. Mm. And, you know, he struggled to make it as a teacher in New York City and live in suburban New York. And, you know, it was, it was hard, but he loved it. But he goes, you know what? And he repeated this many times. I do it because of Mac, Tom McAvoy, our, our, uh, yeah. our uh, coach and, and, and uh, you know, God rest his, his soul. Mm-hmm. He was an amazing guy and uh, really, you know, in some ways was a, uh, a Nick McCurry of the East coast, you know, he, right. he kind of had on the meter, but you know, there's, you couldn't get mad at the guy, you know, you just couldn't, he loved it. It was in his blood. He woke up all the time thinking about it. It's what kept him going. And uh, Bruce always commented, man, I don't know why I do this. What the hell am I traveling? Why am I driving around? Why do I do this? And always come back to the conclusion. Yeah. I, 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 I love Matt. I love Mac. I yeah. really do it for him. I, I picture yeah. I picture him dropping about seventeen f bombs in the middle of all that while you're. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Actually, you touched on what you, you 
talked about the Maccabi team there. Uh, you were inducted to the yeah. Maccabi Hall of Fame? I was for softball. And I guess if you do anything enough in your life, sometimes people take notice. <laughs> I, I ended up playing in, uh, I think, three open games and then two at the Masters levels. And uh, it's funny that, you know, a lot of these, you know, what people consider Masters these days, like, those games you're over 35 you're a masters and uh, here in hawaii i played in, in in some local leagues that they call uh what they call makule in hawaiian it's like the old old timers or old guys league and it's like it's 35 like what's so old about that <laughs> like you guys got yeah right. that's not old but, a little bit <laughs> yeah. but i think in tune with what we were talking about how people pursue sport much longer now you know, once upon a time, 35 was considered like, wow, why yeah. are you doing that? How can you get into something so late? So really, you know, masters in this day and age probably should be something like 45 or 50. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, I think here our masters, what is it, 40? 40, yeah. 40 and over. I so, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, 40, I, I'm 43 I, I right now and still pitching. And, you know, I, oh, I still, feel, well, trying to pitch, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I still feel like I have, you know, a lot more years left under the belt. You do. Yeah. And you take care of yourself. I, I, I like, I probably hit my prime in fast pitch as I, as I was 40 or 41. I was, a, you know, that year I played for the smokers. I played for them two years and uh, that's probably the, you know, somewhere when I was about 41, 42, I considered it to be my prime. I mean, athletically right. in the sport, you know, yeah, I guess so. keeping yourself in shape, that's a big thing. I, I, I probably should start doing it, A AOP. Practice what you preach right now, yes. I would say you should, yeah. Oh, uh, God. Anyway, Jeremy, we got a little thing we end the uh, the uh, the podcast with. We call it Player Association. I'm going to throw uh, I'm gonna throw some names out to you, and uh, you touch on, you know, you can touch on them however you want. <laughs> okay. All right, first, first one, I need to know about this guy, Hayden Smith. The heater. Uh, <laughs> uh, eccentric, lovable, musical, great guy. Uh, and uh, you never knew exactly where he was coming from, but in a really good way. Man. Um, yeah, he. Uh, from what I could see on the, on the film, like he seemed like, a guy that I would definitely Love hang, hang around with, yeah. you know, and, you know, sit down in the beer garden and have some pops with. Yeah, absolutely. I think he, he definitely, uh, what do they say? Uh, beat, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, 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 beat, he beat his own drum, so to speak. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, next, uh, Darren Zach. Huge heart person that when I ever would want to start a team with, that's the guy I would start it with. Mm -hmm. um, just truly, truly a class competitor. And I ended up playing with him in a lot of masters. And I think we've won the ASA masters with Darren two or three times in the over forties, uh, maybe over fifties as well. Wow. And uh, money, money, money on the line. There's nobody I would personally want to win a game than than darren yeah. i mean i know i played with michael white too and i know there's a lot of people out there who would say the same about other people and i'm sure that's with great with um absolutely there's many people who have that that quality but uh 
the one I've seen up close is Darren Zach, and uh, he's um, just a gamer, and you know, just Mick McCurry. It's in your blood. When you know, I heard people saying, "Well, he ain't the same guy when he's forty-five. He doesn't throw it the same well when he's 50. Of course not. Nobody does. No. But he's still doing it because he loves it. Because he's a competitor and he loves the camaraderie and being out there with the guys. And uh, that's you know, that's why you end up doing it. You don't you don't do it when you get older because yeah, you know, you can strike out as many people or you're going to have as many all world. Um, you know, yeah, plaques. It's about that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, next, we got uh, Shane Hunahunu. <laughs> uh, Shane, huge talent. I think people don't realize how good this guy was. He was so powerful and strong, and he wasn't even that big a guy. Like he's probably closer to my height. He's probably only maybe five nine. But he looked like he was a powerful, powerful bat up there. And uh, he was just, um, you know, he's somebody that I think some people say, well, there's a little bit of talent wasted in the game. You know, he should have been better. He could have been this if he'd taken more care of himself. But, you know, there's always a trade off. It's like he ended up getting married. He ended up having all these experiences in Ashland and other places. And he was um, beyond it anything he was really loyal he was really loyal to nick yeah. and he was loyal to on the film and you know he was loyal to the people that he met with a big smile like they could count on him and i think that's what you know really sort of transcended the the kind of cultural and and, and ethnic and all those differences that we saw in a place like ashram it was like when your heart is good and you care about people and you're willing to put yourself out for them, good things happen in those relationships. And I saw that through Shane, um, you know, every, everywhere he turned. Awesome. Um, did he eat a lot of, did he eat too many Taco Bells? Uh, and, <laughs> Maybe. And, uh, and, and uh, double Whopper cheeseburger. Sure. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> but you know, that's the trade off. It was just who he was and he was a lovable character and uh, people loved to be around him. Absolutely. He was, we just got done talking to him. Actually, his podcast come out, comes out tonight as we're talking right now. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he was, man, he was such a joy to talk to. I mean, we were supposed to talk once to him. Once he found his phone. Once he found his phone and, and wallet, he, he lost them. And <laughs> we had to like reschedule the whole thing, but it was all good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and the, the fun thing, part of his lovable character is like half the time he makes up things. And with his language use, and you don't know what the heck he's talking about, <laughs> but still, and you go with it because he's got a nickname or a way of describing something, you know, in his own way that uh, that's a Shane Huna Hunuism, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Love fantastic! It. All right, last but not least, of course, we gotta we gotta talk about him, our friend Nick McCurry. Oh, Nick. A man for all seasons. I mean, truly, I think I touched on it. I mean, there is a reason why, you know, he he's kind of the heartbeat of the game. And I think in the film, when you've seen all these cast of characters and he sort of, you know, finishes it, finishes up the film and sort of like why you do it. And, you know, sort of the, the bittersweet pill of not finishing at the ISC where you want to. But, hey, you still got to you still got to take it have a smile and just get up and do it again. I mean, to me, that embodies a, a spirit that, uh, 
you know, we should all aspire to just um, the need to just wake up and do it again and keep trying and do it with a smile and treat people with, you know, respect and, uh, um, and, uh, yeah, great, great guy. Just a great guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jeremy, we got to thank you for coming on here, man. This has been, this has been awesome. You know, to to hear the whole insight. I got to thank you again for making the movie because I I, I watch it all the time. Yeah, we're looking forward to Fast Pitch too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, man. I, I, I we got to thank you. you. Know, thank I you. Think for, I could speak as much as Nick McCurry, but I might have just done it. So, uh, <laughs> what I what I've given you is, is good. You can edit it properly. I know what it is to be in the edit room right. do me right don't make me too loquacious yeah. and over the top and uh I'll be happy. oh yeah, man for sure that's awesome you know thanks again for coming on man uh, you know all the best going okay. forward yeah have fun surfing my pleasure again <laughs> thank you guys for doing what you do you got to do everything to keep the things alive that that means something to us and uh, you guys are obviously doing that awesome Great. Thanks, thanks jeremy, jeremy. take care okay take yep. care man be well guys bye-bye bye-bye Whew. Wow. Good, good podcast, Randy. Good. I know. <laughs> oh, fuck. Do you know how many times I've actually said that? Yeah. Too many A times. A lot. Podcast. It's like I'm it's from pod- Boston. It's podcast. It's like I'm from podcast. Anyway, back to the podcast. Yeah. Fabulous. Great, Great guy. Oh. You know, I, I don't know what he does for a living. We didn't ask him, but it I sounds to me like he should be teaching. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> he used really big words that you're never going to understand. That's I understood to, every one of them. Going to Yale. I'm just joking. Going to Yale. Man. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Smart, smart guy. Yeah. Love the game. Loves the game. Yep. Oh, fuck. I'm Still joking. playing. Still, Still playing, playing to yeah, this day. Exactly. I mean. Yeah. Seems like they have a lot more opportunity down in the States. Than we do. Yeah. yeah. Like the Masters and the over blah, blah, blahs and yeah. the Maccabi. And yeah. It's well, Maccabi, you, you got to be Jewish. Oh, no, I understand that. Yeah. I just mean, I've never heard of it until right. from the States. I don't think we sent anything from Canada. No, 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 we no. don't. Yeah. No. Anyway. Anyway, no, I, I, that was, I mean, I left out some questions that I had. Yeah. I know he had to get, he had places to be and. For sure. Uh, no, that was a, a good lengthy one. For you sure. know what I want to, I want to ask him because actually Billy Hillhost actually wanted me to ask him about, remember the guy in the film? Uh, I think it was uh, grandma's son there that had the wire for his shoelace. <laughs> Billy wanted me to ask him about, about do you know what's that do you know oh. what that guy's up to these days <laughs> I totally yeah. oh, I wish I could ask but uh, oh, you're not that smart I know <laughs> <laughs> anyway another week we're getting close to Christmas actually this will be coming out Christmas is next is like in two weeks six days no Christmas when this is, comes out oh when this comes out yeah come on sorry <clears throat> so to all of our listeners Merry Christmas all the best over the holidays uh, like we said here, plenty of times, do not drink and drive. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Like, share, like, share, follow us stuff. on all social media platforms. Yeah, have safe holidays. Looking have forward to uh, a good 2022. Hopefully we'll be everybody. Everybody will be on the ball field in 2022. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. Merry Christmas. Take, Take care. care. Okay. Cheers. Classified. All right, kids. Time to get in bed. Santa's coming soon. Okay. One story, all right? Here we go. On the night, so silent night. Stay by the fire, baby. It's so cold outside. Tis the season. It's snow. It's already 10 below. Find the love out here on this Christmas night. The bells are ringing.
grab the decorations Don't forget tradition Baby, it's cold outside, you need to get your mittens Hang the mistletoe and write your Christmas wishes It's better to give than receive, show the kids the difference Cause this year, this year has been a tough one I'm just trying to celebrate and spend it with my loved ones Spread some cheer, pouring festive beer I appreciate the blessings I was blessed with here Uncle Chris and Aunt Leah reminiscing on the front porch Little Tay Tay trying to build another snow fort uh, I hear the church bells ringing I'll be there Christmas Eve with my family all singing Hallelujah, hallelujah Okay, well I'll be ready with the lights on. Got the decorations up, it's taking me all night long. Log on the fire, put on my ugly sweater. The children are Are you downsizing? Maybe need more room because of additions to the family, or possibly seeking that dream home you've always wanted. Well, Tim Eisner at Royal LePage Atlantic is the guy for you. With a proven track record and multiple awards, Tim goes above and beyond to find out your needs and exactly what you're looking for. So if you're seeking a new home or trying to sell your current one, contact Tim at 902-499-5717 or check him out on Facebook at Tim Eisner. Again, that's 902-499-5717. Trust me, when all is said and done, we'll be saying Tim Eisner strikes again.